So today in the uh, church calendar, it's Palm Sunday, and the idea comes from Hold on. Okay, I just did something. I don't want Tokyo. Okay. The idea comes from when Jesus came into Jerusalem the last week of his life, uh, knowing he was going to lay his life down on the cross. He came in on a donkey, and they laid uh, palm branches, branches down uh, for the king, uh, the king of glory. And so that's the idea of the Palm Sunday. And some churches will actually have little little palms that they wave around and that kind of thing. We don't have, Sorry, we don't have those for you this morning. But we're, that's the story we're going to look at today is the triumphal entry. And it flows right into, in Luke chapter 19, it flows right into uh, Jesus weeping, over Jerusalem, and then the cleansing of the temple. So we're going to kind of put all of these together and look at these. Uh, so if you have a Bible, if you don't, it's okay. You can just listen along or follow along. But we're going to look at Luke uh, chapter 19, uh, verses 28 to 48. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. And I'm, I'm just going to read it first, kind of slowly, and make a few comments here and there, and then we'll swing back around and, and fill in the gaps, all right? You guys ready for the Word? Yes. I love the Word of God. It really does something to you. It kind of gets in inside of you, gets on the inside, and, and begins to work these ideas these truths that are communicated in Scripture uh, have a way of transforming us, don't they? And you know, this particular story will reveal a lot about God, about who Jesus is. And some of it is difficult. Uh, some of it is, is sweet. Um, it makes me think of the Apostle Paul, who said, Behold the goodness and what? The severity of God. I think uh, Tim Keller, the pastor in New York City and author who's had such an impact on this generation, said something like, God is a lot more merciful than we can imagine, and he is a lot more severe than we can imagine. But this story kind of gives a little bit of both of that. Um, even the fact that Christ, as John preached a few weeks ago, or last week or whatever, um, set his heart toward Jerusalem, that he knew where he was going. You know, for the Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross that he knew what he was going to face in Jerusalem. And we also know that he, in his humanity, uh, didn't want to do that, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Lord, if there's any other way, you know, looking to the Father, if there's any other way for this to happen, 
take this cup from me. That cup was the cup of suffering that Jesus would suffer for us, for our sins. If there's any way to take this cup, please, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he agonized over this, and yet he set his face toward Jerusalem to give his life for us. And that's, that's what's happening here. He's coming in, verse 28. <clears throat> when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Before we get deep, we'll get a little comedic here, because I always think this story is funny. But he says uh, to the two disciples, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Now, I think at that moment they were like, um, okay, whose cult is it? Like, do we just, is it your, do you own it? You know, they're probably asking little questions inside their mind. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. I love that there's no, I just, if it were me, I'd be like, wait, who's, is it, what do you mean the Lord has need of it? Like, do we just say, is it your cult? Is it, are we stealing here for the glory of God? Or what is happening, you know? But there's no record of them saying anything. I think they were just like, okay. Um, or maybe Jesus said it quick and just walked off. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so those who were sent, they went away. I love their just blind obedience here. Uh, okay, well, let's just do this. Uh, they were sent out, and they went away, and they found the cult just as he had told them. And as they were, I'm going to add the word sheepishly. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But as they were untying the cult like kind of waiting for, is anybody seeing this right now? Is anybody watching, I wonder, um, as we're stealing this cult? As they were untying the cult, its owners said to them, you know, in text is a little limited. I always want to know the tone of this. But the way I read it is, why are you untying the cult? <laughs> and of course, there's two of them. And I don't know if they worked this out beforehand, like who's going to respond if somebody challenges us? And we also don't get the uh, tone here, because in verse 34, it says, and they said, the Lord has need of it. So that could have been uh, them, like, putting on this authority, right, you know, and just acting like they knew what they were doing. And they might have said, the Lord has need of it, like, very stern and strong to kind of, like, put that person in place. Or it could have been more of a question, like, the Lord has need of it? <laughs> we don't know. We'll find out one day, I suppose, when we talk to these guys, these disciples. But I love their obedience in this. Um, when they said the Lord has need of it, I guess that did the trick. And they brought it to Jesus, 
and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, just a a point here is that there's a powerful symbolism in this. Of course, it's um, Jesus riding in on a colt is a fulfillment of prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 9, it talks about that. This was one of the many, many uh, prophecies made in the Old Testament that talked about uh, Christ and what he would be like and things that he would do. And one was that he would be riding on a colt. Uh, so it was a fulfillment of prophecy, but it was also powerful symbolism because he came in peace. Uh, you might know that many, many of the Jews were just longing because they were under the oppressive uh, hand of the Romans. They were just longing for the Messiah to come and just crush the Romans and kind of set the people free in a military sense. And of course, Jesus did not come in his first coming in that spirit at all. He came meek. He came lowly. He came uh, gentle, right? And so him coming into Jerusalem this final week on a donkey, meek and lowly. It's not a very powerful animal, right? Uh, it's, it's a very lowly, very humble animal. He came in peace. This was a symbol that he was not coming to Jerusalem to make war, but he was coming in the spirit of peace. So there he is uh, riding along on this donkey, and he is met by a massive crowd of people. And they were spreading their cloaks on the road as was a tradition to do when kings would would come to a city. Uh, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is such an amazing scene. You think about how he was uh, ministering for three years, right? And think of all of the things, even just the stories we have in in Scripture, right? In the the four Gospels, uh, so much. Uh, But then, uh, you know, if, if everything was recorded, all the stories, all the miracles, there would be no, not enough room. Uh, to contain it, right, as one of the writers brings out. There was so much that happened in three years. So you had, this was a a reunion of sorts. You had people who were at one time blind but were healed by Jesus who were in this crowd. You had uh, probably many of the people who experienced the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Remember that uh, classic miracle? Of course, his 12 were there, the ones who... Uh, Peter was there who, you know, walked on water and and the disciples were there who saw Jesus walk on water and saw him rebuke the wind and the waves and all of these different miracles, paralytics uh, that were healed. And there were probably people in this crowd who were raised from the dead. Uh, So can you imagine the energy of this, the excitement of this, the joy of this, like everybody kind of sharing their stories with each other and 
you know, kind of communicating, meeting each other. And there was, a, it was a clear foretaste of eternal glory, right? I mean, th- th- this was the company of the redeemed. These were the lovers of Jesus. These were the ones who had experienced God's love and had received the gospel message into their hearts and had a sense of joy and admiration and worship to Christ. So it was a beautiful scene, and it was a picture of heaven, really. It was a picture of what one day will be when the company of the redeemed will be together and we will worship God forever and all that goes into that. So I think, you know, I think sometimes we, we forget Jesus uh, was human in the way we are human and feel emotions. Uh, we sometimes think of him as, and some of the movies kind of bring this out, the Jesus movies, he seems almost not human. You know, he's just so mystical and almost... Uh, like, a, I don't know, he just, he's so different that you can't relate to him. But I think the scriptures bring out uh, much more humanity in Christ. You know, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands. He touches the orbit of all of our suffering. You know, he feels things. Uh, so, and we see Jesus expressing a range of emotions throughout the Gospels, but certainly in this story. And so he's, I think he's feeling some of the joy of this, and, and I think it was encouraging to him. You know, almost like that, back to Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him. For, you know, I think Jesus was thinking, this is why I came for these people for these redeemed, for these lovers of God, for just the family spirit that was there, the excitement that was there. Like, this is why I came to the earth. This is why I'm going to go to the cross and be faithful to do what my Father has called me to do. This is why I'm laying my life down. This is why I'm going to endure the agony of the cross for these people. And I think he felt a measure of joy in that moment. And then this uh, kind of famous uh, verse here, verse 39, some of, the, some of the Pharisees, if you've never heard of the Pharisees, they were just the religious, uh, one sect of religious leaders in that day. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, <laughs> talk about just not getting it, not getting the scene at all. Like, they were just not in tune with what was happening and the joy of this and recognizing the glory of God. This is the, this is the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the Christ. You know, and people were seeing that and getting that and worshiping him. And, and the Pharisee, you'd think the Pharisee being one who really probably knew the Old Testament scriptures better than most people in that great massive crowd and yet they, they just didn't see it. They, they didn't get it. They didn't want to get it. They didn't want to see it. And so some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, 
If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What was Jesus saying when he said that? It was kind of a rebuke to the Pharisee, wasn't it? I mean, these Pharisees were saying, you know, your disciples are out of control. The, the way that they're expressing their worship and adoration and joy right now is not fitting. And so you should shut them up and kind of put them in their place. But Jesus was saying by saying that if they were silent, the stones would cry out. I believe he was saying it is fitting for all of creation, for the trees to clap their hands, for the mountains to do a dance, you know, for even the stones to rise up and, and start to shout. It is fitting for all of creation to be ecstatic in this moment. Because this is the arrival of the king of glory. This is the one. I am the one who is going to set all things straight. I am the one who is going to reconcile all things to myself. I am the one who is going to restore humanity back to the Father. This is the greatest moment to celebrate. And the Pharisee, the religious man, was not, was not understanding that, sadly. Sadly. And maybe that conversation could have triggered these next verses partly. Uh, maybe that was just a reminder to Jesus that some people just didn't get it. We don't really know. But let's move to this next Verse, verse 41, and when he drew near, when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem and saw the city, the great city of Jerusalem, the Bible says he wept over it. It seems like an abrupt shift of emotion, right? You know, to, it's like this, the greatest party it's like you're having a birthday party and it's just so happy or maybe a wedding and there's just so much joy at the, at the wedding, at the, at the party. And this has happened to people. And then all of a sudden they just, they kind of, maybe they go walk down the hall and maybe the bride kind of loses it because maybe her dad passed away and couldn't be there. Or maybe the, the grandfather that they were so, so, so close with you know, couldn't be there and had passed away. And so they, it just hits them. It's almost the contrast, right, of the great joy of the moment and someone that they love who is missing it, or in this case, not getting it, not seeing it. And I think that's what was happening in, in the heart of, of Jesus. He, he just started weeping. Kind of reminds me of the uh, verse where it talks about Jesus coming into um, the city and, and just weeping and uh, saying, oh, how often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. 
And it shows you, again, back to you know, the goodness and the severity, it shows you the, the tenderness of God. You know, Scripture is very clear. I mean, we can, if, we, if we're not careful, we can read the Scriptures and feel like God is very stern and, you know, just God of judgment. We can miss the heart of God and that, you know, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, Jesus loved the Pharisees who wanted to kill him. He loved his enemies. He loved Jerusalem. He came to his own. These were his own people and yet his own received him not. You know, but he wasn't, uh, he didn't take pleasure. He wasn't cold or apathetic toward the rejection of the Messiah. It broke him. That's love. Christ loved his enemies. And so here he is weeping over Jerusalem because these were his very people. These were the Jewish people. And yet many of them didn't recognize who he was, didn't want to see it, didn't want to submit themselves to his kingship. And he says this, verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What is he saying? Oh, oh, that you would understand where peace and joy comes from. That you would understand who I am. And that I come to bring life. I come to bring peace. I come to bring fulfillment, satisfaction. I come to bring what you long for deep down. And yet you are rejecting the very greatest thing that you need. Is what Jesus was saying. Would that you even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace. What makes for peace? Submission to Christ. What makes for, for peace? You know, recognizing Jesus and saying, Lord, um, I want to do your will. I want to obey you. I want to be right with you. I want to follow you. Uh, you're the king. You're the creator of all things. You are the maker of heaven and earth. I am just a, a piece of clay. I want to be in right relationship with you. Right relationship with the king, with King Jesus, is what brings peace to the heart. Regardless of how religious we may be, if we are not in right relationship with the king, King Jesus, we will have no peace, right? There's no peace for the wicked, the Bible says. And we've all tasted that, even as believers, right? When we try to do things our own way, we try to go, you know, well, you know, we like this part of Jesus, but not this part. We like these scriptures, but not these scriptures. We're going to do part. We're going to do, do do part of the Bible, and then part of like what we want. Uh, how many how many have experienced that? You know, time and again, like you try to uh, add your little ways in, and it just you lose the peace. The peace just flies away. We have to be all in 
or not at all, right? We have to be just uh, fully surrendered to Christ and, and just, what's, what's the word? Um, you know, kind of easy, easy to shape, um, hands off, you know, not coming on our own terms. Okay, I'll serve you, Jesus. You know, I know you really want me. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do this and this and this and that, but I ain't doing this and don't talk to me about this and I'm not believing that. That's kind of the, the that's kind of a popular way of approaching, relating to God. And there is no spiritual, spirit-given peace. There's no fruit of the spirit of joy and peace in that. And I know that from experience because I've tried to do that and there is no peace in that. We need to be just, Lord, you are God and I am not. I'm a piece of clay. So Jesus uh, makes this incredible uh, statement. He says, but now... They are hidden from your eyes. The Message Bible puts it this way. Now, I think, I don't know if he uses the word but, but now it's too late. It's one of the most sobering, I could even use the word terrifying ideas in the Bible that there is a point where a person is given over to their sin, where they're so fully enveloped in their hardness of heart that they're, they're just lost. They're beyond repair. And I know there's certain verses that seem to say, oh, I don't know, you know, no matter what, you know, we can always come back to Jesus. And they're, yeah, that's there in Scripture, but then there's also this, you know, like the Bible says, call on the Lord while he's near. Seek the Lord while he may be found. What do you mean, while he may be found? Why, is there a time where he may not be found? I mean, this is rooted, these verses we're looking at are rooted in uh, Jeremiah 7. And you know what God said to Jeremiah because the people were so hard, and he said, don't even pray for these people. Don't even intercede because I'm not going to listen. I've already set my judgment in motion and it's too late at this point. There does come a point in the uh, kind of in the economy of God or however you want to word it where judgment is in motion and there is no turning back, right? I mean, there was a moment when God shut Noah didn't do it. God himself shut the door of the ark, right? That was the moment when it was too late at that point. No, wait, I changed my mind. No, really, I'm going to. At that point, it was, it was too late. God has a timetable in that sense. He extends grace, but grace extends sometimes for a set time, a season, and then it closes up. The door is wide open. Grace and mercy. Patience. Long-suffering. But then the door closes. 
And that's what Jesus is saying. This is so sobering right here. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Or as the message says, now it's too late. And then he goes on and says, verse 43, for the days will come upon you. This is a prophetic judgment he's proclaiming. Now, remember, he's bawling as he's speaking this. He's not saying this with a sense of like, and you're going to get what you deserve, you punks. It's not like that at all. He's weeping as he shares this. For the days will come. These are the words of Jesus. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, what's going on in this? He's talking about what happens uh, just 30-plus years later, uh, shortly after the death, the suicide, really, of Nero. Uh, Jerusalem, well, the Jews rebelled against the Romans, and the Romans were determined to snuff out the rebellion and really put a clamp down on Jerusalem. And they created a siege. They surrounded Jerusalem. The historian Josephus gives a lot of detail to this particular historical event that happened when the Romans uh, just massacred by the thousands men, women, and children. It's an awful story. Jesus predicted that it was going to happen, and it happened a little over 30 years later. And of course, the whole, this whole story really is a picture, a forewarning of eternal judgment, right? Revelation 20, when all the dead will stand before God, great and small, and give an account for their life. There will be a great judgment at one point in, in the future. There will be a great separation. Um, and why did this judgment come? Jesus gives it right there in verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, it almost sounds like you can read that as like, well, they just didn't know. I, I didn't know. No. God himself visited Jerusalem and displayed his glory through signs and wonders and miracles and through the teaching of the truth. And yet, even despite all of that blinding light that came from heaven 
That's how sinful men's hearts were, that they rejected that light. They pushed it aside. Then the next verse, uh, verse 45, after Jesus makes this great statement of judgment, it says, He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Let's just stop there and think about that for a minute. What's going on there? It's a famous story, right? Even secular people kind of know and Maybe they kind of think it's cool that Jesus came in. It kind of shows a different side of Jesus. You know, sometimes you see Jesus welcoming the little children and, uh, you know, he's so meek and mild and coming in on the donkey. And yet, here he is driving out those who were selling, what were they selling? Animals, uh, sacrifices. People were coming from all over the world, right, to... Uh, to come to celebrate the Passover. And so instead of, basically the idea is instead of traveling with all of your livestock that you're going to give as a sacrifice, you could actually just buy the livestock there um, once you got to, to Jerusalem. Um, same with money. They were uh, coming from all different countries to pay their pay the temple tax and and kind of give their monetary offering. And so they had to exchange, uh, change the currency from whatever their currency was into what uh, worked in Jerusalem. But what was happening, a few things were happening that Jesus had an issue with. One was the location where this was happening. Uh, Jesus was sort of protesting where this was happening. It says that where he entered the temple... This was happening in the temple. Out of all the places in all of Jerusalem or the surrounding area, in fact, uh, this selling wasn't a bad thing that there was, you know, providing this service to uh, accommodate the travelers that were coming from really far to give them animals or change the currency. That, That wasn't an issue. But it was where it was happening. It used to happen outside the city. But now it was happening right inside the temple, right inside the place of worship. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, we've all been to, I don't know, farms or the zoo probably. And uh, I mean, animals are beautiful, but they're kind of, they're kind of stinky. They're they're loud. They're noisy. It's, It's just not it doesn't set the right... I mean, imagine if we had that this morning. We had like hundreds of livestock in this room while Julie was trying to... And they're like coming up. They're coming up on the stage. They're like nipping at Julie's uh, ukulele and they're getting up in front of you. They're making noises. They're not making their noises like in rhythm or in tune. You know, it would just be distracting. Totally distracting on every level. Visually, audio, you know, just the smell, everything would be like, what is this is not helpful for the worship of God. So Jesus was protesting that. But he was also protesting 
and some of the other Gospels bring this out a little bit more, uh, what was happening that, you know, I don't know if they still do this, but I remember when uh, I used to eat hamburgers at McDonald's, you would get a hamburger for like, you know, 99 cents or something. Um, But then when you were on the turnpike and you went to get a hamburger, it was like $2.59, right? Why? Because they were just taking advantage of the fact that you're not going to get off the highway and pay the toll and get back on and do that whole thing. You're not going to do it. You know, this is before the easy pass. You know, it's just, it's just a hassle. So you're just, whatever. All right, $2.59 for the stupid hamburger. Overcharge me. You guys are so greedy, but I'm hungry, so you just deal with it. That's kind of what was happening. They were taking advantage of the fact that all of these pilgrims around the world would come in and would be willing to pay exorbitant prices for the livestock to sacrifice. Or they were charging a lot to change the currency. And so Jesus was protesting that as well. And he says this famous uh, statement, verse 46, saying to them, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now that's, that one statement is actually coming from two places, Isaiah 56, which talks all about, I mean, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but it just it's all about my house shall be a house of prayer and my house shall be for the lowly and the poor and the broken and the foreigners. And, you know, the, the, almost like the jealousy of God talking about, like, my house shall be a house for all nations, for all different kinds of people, for the broken, for the poor. And, and, and I will bring them in and I will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. That's what Isaiah 56 is about. So he's, it's rooted in that, but it's also rooted in Jeremiah 7. Now, I'm not, again, like I don't have time this morning to go back and I would love to read Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, but I challenge you to maybe take some time this afternoon or this week or something and read both of those chapters. Jeremiah 7 is absolutely sobering because God tells Jeremiah, I want you to go and stand at the gate of... (laughs) kind of the temple, the gate of the church, kind of where the people are coming in to to worship God. It would be like somebody uh, outside doing that this morning, which we probably would not appreciate. but, uh, But here's Jeremiah standing at the gate and basically prophetically rebuking the people for their absolute hypocrisy and pretense. And he uses the word den of robbers. You know, and the prophetic word goes in essence like this. You know, you are coming in to worship me, to do this, you know, kind of religious thing, to sing these songs. And yet, you need to amend your ways because I see your life. I see your adultery. I see your thievery. I see your disregard for the poor, the way you oppress the foreigner, and so on and so forth. In other words, your lifestyle is at odds with my heart. 
And yet, God says, you come in and lift up your hands as though nothing is wrong, as though everything is okay. And that's really what the first many 10, 11 chapters of Jeremiah are all about because the people were very religious, very devoted, very much had the right words, very much, oh, my father, my father, and the temple, and they had all the right words. And God says, I see your heart. I see your idolatry. That's what Jesus is referring to here. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The house of God, the place of gathering where believers gather wherever that may be, whether a temple or a church or a house or a whatever, storefront or whatever kind of building. This used to be a car parts building (laughs) years ago where they sold car parts in the early 1900s. But wherever the people of God gather is to be a place, a holy ground in a sense, a place of communion with God, a place where we're treading softly, where we know that, that, that he, is, he is holy. And we, we should be coming in with that, with that spirit. I think that we, we've kind of lost, at least I can't speak for other countries, but in, in America, I think we've kind of lost that sense of awe that sense of sacredness of the presence of God. You know, we're, uh, <laughs> we're just so casual, you know, with... Now, you know, in some ways we should, yes, it's, we want to be comfortable in, in God's presence. He wants us to be like children and to be free, and he's our father. And yet there's another sense where he is holy. He is the king of glory. He is the maker of heaven and earth. I mean, I was reading this morning when John, who was very close, right? One of the disciples, John, uh, very close with Christ, was the youngest disciple, and he would lay his head down on the bosom of Jesus, and they were kind of affectionate toward one another, and he was obviously a godly man who lived a long life serving, serving the Lord, and yet when John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, sees Jesus. I mean, his eyes are like flames of fire. You know, his face was like the brilliance of the sun in its full strength. His voice was like the voice of the sound of many waters. I mean, he's just pulling a word, just trying to describe. It was so absolutely, completely overwhelming and blinding that John, who was godly and had lived, you know, I don't know what age he was at this point, a long, godly life. He falls on his face as though dead. terrified of the glory of God. We, we, we sometimes lose that, don't we? We become so casual with the presence of God that we lose that sense of awe. You know, I think of Moses, you know, taking his shoes off, you know, for the ground that he was on was holy ground. Why was it holy? Because God was manifesting himself 
to Moses in the burning bush. There's a sense of glory. There's a sense of just awe, awesomeness. The blindingness of God's light, his holiness. When we touch it, when we encounter it, I feel like sometimes we just don't know what we're talking about. You know, we, we, we just, we're so casual in the presence of God that we don't realize even what we're dealing with. My house shall be a house of prayer. And it says he was teaching daily in the temple after this, after he uh, kind of drove out those who were selling. Other gospels say he turned over tables of the money changers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Now listen to this. The chief priests and the scribes, these were the religious and the principal men of the people. Here's how they were relating to the Messiah. They were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Isn't this the story of humanity? It's this element of Jesus in his glory, in his holiness, separating, right? Actually, I'm going to read this because John the Baptist talks about Jesus coming and he describes his ministry like this. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, speaking of Jesus, is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Wow! I mean, just think of the way in churches throughout, again, I'm just speaking for America, that Christ is portrayed. It's always he's good, he's kind, he's gentle, he's merciful, he includes everybody. He's just so, you know, he's like a big softy. And yet, there's this idea of Christ as separating, right? Separating the wheat from the chaff. Just let this sink in for a minute. Just take this idea in. I mean, you see it even right back into uh, Genesis chapter 4, the kind of the separation of Cain and Abel. Or in Genesis chapter 6, you see the, this great separation of eight people being saved on the ark and the rest of humanity being wiped out. You see the separation in the days of Moses between those who submitted to the lordship of God and those who would not. The prophets made this separation sharp at times. 
in the whole ministry of Jesus. Just I challenge you, read through the Gospels and, and just pull out the idea of Jesus separating, right? The sheep from the goats, Matthew 25. Over and over again, he talks about this day of separation. Now, his ministry actually did separate, and you see it here in, in Luke 19, that some wanted to kill him, destroy him, and of course, they did crucify him. And others were so far from that, just wanted to love him and worship him, and were so filled with gratitude. But there is a separation. That's what the gospel does. That's what the glory, the brightness of Jesus does, is it separates. We don't like that idea. You know, we, we kind of forget that. We, we sort of take that out completely of the Bible because we like to... We like to make up our own version of Jesus, the Jesus that doesn't separate, the Jesus that just, you know, unites everybody, the Jesus that comes and he's just like this peacemaker and he just brings everybody together as one big happy family in one big like world unity. That's actually more in tune with the Antichrist who is coming. Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, but division. I'm actually going to set a mother against her daughter. Because of the gospel, members of our own family are going to be at odds with one another. This is the gospel. This is Jesus. He separates You see this in his statement that on that great day of judgment, when people stand before him, he will say to some, well done, good and faithful servant. To others, depart from me. I never knew you. There's a separation of Jesus saying, you know, some build their house on the rock. And some built it on sand. And when the great flood comes, the great judgment comes, one house will fall. The other house will stand. There are those who are ready and there are those who are not. There are those who have oil in their lamp and there are those who do not. And that's why Jesus says over and over in, in the Gospels, be ready. And that's my word to you today. Be ready. I've been a Christian for 33 years. And I have studied a lot of end time things through the years. I don't know. I think there's a lot of ideas, a lot of theories. I just, all I know in all of my studies of, you know, is there going to be a pre-tribulation rapture, a post-tribulation, a mid-trib, is, you know, all the different interpretations of all these different, all I know is we need to be ready. Same with Reformed theology and, you know, once saved, always saved, and I was saved back in 1989, so I'm good no matter what I do, you know, he's got me, um, you can't lose your salvation. Okay, I... I'll tell you, 
after 33 years of studying that, like as much as anyone has thought about these doctrines, I don't know. All I know, and maybe I'm being overly simple about it, Jesus says, be ready. Can you just hear that this morning? Be ready. Don't quickly just, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saved. I'm good. I'm, I got the blessed assurance. You know, I got the Holy Spirit. I'm good. Listen, be right with God. Amend your ways if you need to. Because if we are hypocrites on the day of judgment, we're going to be in the company of hypocrites. Do you hear? I mean, for, just put aside your airtight theology for a moment. If we're an adulterer, we're not going to be amongst the company of the godly and the redeemed on the day of judgment. There has to be fruit in our lives. This is like the great deception of the age that even creeps into our good gospel theology and reform theology that we can, here's the delusion right here, that we can we can sin and we're going to be fine on the day of judgment. We can be hypocrites, but we're going to be fine on the day of judgment because, you know, we're covered in the blood. We can, whatever, have sex with our girlfriend, have sex with our boyfriend, and we're going to be fine. We can abuse drugs, abuse alcohol, but we're going to be fine because we're covered in the blood because we've got the grace of God. It's like a license, right, to sin. Oh, I've been saved. I was saved. Yeah, Jesus saved me. And we can look back and Jesus saved me and I've seen him work and do different things. Listen, why does the Bible, especially the New Testament, have so many warnings to us to be ready, to be right, to occupy yourself with the kingdom of God? to fear God, to stay humble, to persevere. There is no sense in that you get from the New Testament at all. That's like, oh, as long as you made a decision somewhere back in time and you, you know, let Jesus come into your heart and you said a sinner's prayer or whatever, that that's somehow enough. You actually have to live this thing out. I mean, First John is, there's a few verses in there. If you, you can say all day long, I love God. But if you say in your heart that you don't love somebody, you're in darkness. Be ready. Be right. You know, how do you even respond to portions like this. I mean, I think that there's a lot of different ways to respond. We could be smug. Well, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Because that's how everybody thinks. Everybody's fine now. I mean, really think about it. Who in your life do you think, who, who do you, just forget about yourself for a moment. Just think about all the people in your 100, 200, 500 people in your sphere of relationships how many of them do you really worry about that if it all ended today and they stood before God, that they're going to be lost? We're like in denial about this. 
We just, I don't know, they're fine. They're the nice people. They're just, we think everybody's nice, everybody's good. I mean, they're really terrible, awful people they're going to be. This is, either we're going to believe in Jesus, all of Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that is revealed in this script, not some new Jesus, new and improved Jesus, the Jesus that we're told about, you know, everybody's like kind of, let's, let's, Let's remake Jesus, because we don't really like the Jesus of the Bible, so we're going to make a new Jesus, a better Jesus, that is just so nice and so good, and he doesn't, he doesn't you know, judge anybody. He just like includes the whole world. The Antichrist Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, I don't want anything to do with that. We will end up worshiping a Jesus who is not even, it's another Jesus who isn't Jesus at all and doesn't save, by the way. It's an imaginary Jesus, an imaginary Jesus that we make up that has all, that who's just like us and thinks just like us, doesn't save. There's only one Jesus. And we need to embrace him in his fullness. But back to us, be ready. Search your heart. You know, we could be smug about that. We could be offended like the Pharisees, religious teachers were offended by the teaching of Jesus. I don't know about you, but listen, when I read these things, when I, you know, come to grips with these things, it breaks me. You know, it's, it's it, God, you know, you just, you search your heart, right? You, you kind of get low. You, you start looking at, okay, how am I related to the poor? How am I related to my enemies? How am I related to God? How am I related to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do other pastors in the city? Is there anybody that I'm bitter at? Is there anything in my life that is crooked, that needs to be straightened out? Is there anything in my life that's rough, that needs to be made smooth? Is there anything that is offensive to the living God in my life? Does God look at me and say, you're stingy? Does God look at me and say, you're not related to your money in the right way? Does God look at me and say, you're uh, inappropriate with the opposite sex? You are proud. You are oppressing people. Like to really ask these questions honestly and let the fire of God purify us. Because when you start doing that, you get to a point where like, you can't fix your evil heart. You start getting really honest. You know where it drives you? It drives you to God. I need a baptism of your cleansing fire to come on my life. What else can you do? What, are you going to clean yourself up to make yourself ready for the day you stand before God? No. All you can do is run to the cross and cry for mercy. Remember the picture, right? The Pharisee, oh, I thank God I'm not like these other, you know, lame sinners around me that, uh, you know, I fast twice a week and I pray and I do all these awesome things for you, God. You must be so happy to have me and thank God that I am not like this pathetic sinner next to me who is on the ground uh, pleading and begging for mercy beating his chest, saying, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus used that picture. And he said the religious man was praying to himself. 
but this is the man who will walk away justified. So I say to every one of us, have you had it out like that with God? Have you ever come to grips with your own sin? Have you ever been humbled in the presence of God and cried like that, beating your breast and kind of coming to grips with your own wickedness? Wickedness? I'm a good person. If that's really how you think, you are lost Because one of the sure signs of God working in your life is that you know the depths of your own depravity. If you haven't seen your sin, you haven't seen God. Be ready. Be ready. This breaks me. I don't want to, you know, I wouldn't want any one of you, the thought of any one of you missing the glory of God, eternity, is just, it's almost hard to handle. Be ready. Take a breath. You have breath in your lungs. It means there's time right? There's time. You're in a a time of grace. Don't wait. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till, oh, I'm going to think about this for the next few weeks, for the next, maybe next year, maybe after, right after I just, you know, I just want to sin a few more times, like a few more drug times, a few more times getting drunk, a few more like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to deal. I should probably deal with this. I should probably someday. No, don't now. Don't wait. You don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't. Are you kidding me? I'm 23. Of course I have tomorrow. No, you don't know if you have tomorrow. Get right now. And what better week to do it than Holy Week? Amen? Amen. Well, I knew we weren't going to break up into groups today. Because <laughs> I, I figured uh, you guys just need to sit with this for a minute. But our time is up. Thanks for listening. I just felt like I needed to bring this word to us and please receive it. Receive it as coming from, from love. I have no uh, pleasure, and it's hard to you know speak these things, but it's out of love, you know. I just I want I want you guys to be ready. I want everybody to be ready. It wouldn't help some of you if I were like, yeah, you're ready. You're you're awesome. You're great. You're wonderful. You have a beautiful personality, and you're such a nice person. And and if you're actually not ready, that doesn't help you. That's actually terrible cruelty to do that to you. So I'm gonna challenge you on occasion. Well, let's take. Um, just a couple minutes, and I'm going to close in prayer in, in about two or three minutes. But I just feel like we need just a little quietness in the presence of God. So for those that are watching online, I don't know you could, I don't know if it's quiet at home if there's babies and stuff like that. <laughs> but we're just going to take a couple minutes, and I just want you to put yourself before the Lord, quiet your heart before God, 
and say, Lord, is there anything? Search me, O God. Try me. See if there be any wicked way within me. Is there anything that needs to change? Help me to amend my ways. So let's do that for a couple minutes and then I'll close in prayer. Lord, we set our hearts before you. We know that your eyes are like flames of fire, that you you see us, you see our hearts, you see what we are, who we are in secret, the hidden things, the motives of the heart, you see it all. Lord, we're completely transparent to you. Lord, you see all, so we cry to you, Lord, for mercy. We pray that we would not be blind in any way. Lord, please don't let us be deceived. Please don't let us be falsely assured about ourselves. Lord, probe us. Probe us. Search us, expose everything in us that is at odds with you, everything in us that's unchristlike. Um, Lord, search us and find anything in us that separates us from closeness with you. Lord, we don't want anything in the way. 
Lord, if there's any way that we've hardened our hearts or become kind of seared in our consciences about certain things, uh, Father, we ask, Lord, to awaken us, to revive us in that way. Lord, help us to in some way kind of forget about what all the masses of professing Christians are doing and what's happening in the bigger picture of Christendom in America. Lord, help us just to look at you, to look at the word, uh, to, be, to be right with you, even if that feels different, even if that feels like we're marching to the beat of a different drum, even within the Christian, greater Christian community. Lord, help us not to worry about that. Help us to worry about you. Help us to think about you. Help us to live a life that honors you. Lord, I pray for every one of us that you would break us this holy week, that you would bring us low, that we would, Lord, I know repentance is the, is the gateway, really, to the presence of God. So I pray that this week, Lord, you would just grant us deep repentance. Not just the <clears throat> effort on our part of getting rid of things, but grant us repentance from you, that spirit of just when you come and you cleanse and you break us and you produce that conviction and contrition in us. Lord, when you do that work of coming to our heart like a refiner's fire and purifying us, Lord, that's the part we can't do. Lord, we ask you to do that. And I know when that work happens, the result is life. The result is the fragrance of Jesus. The result is communion with God, depth in God. The result is peace and joy and divine love. And that's what we desire. We want to be close to you, Lord. So, Father, bless every single person in this community. Uh, move in their hearts this week. Prepare them for Good Friday and for Easter service. We pray for an outpouring of the Spirit next weekend. Pour out times of refreshing. Let there be so much joy on Easter Day that it's tangible that it is absolutely tangible. Lord, we don't want to just hype it up and, you know, I mean, it would be easy to, okay, let's do, you know, let's have candy and have all these, like, extra things. Lord, I pray that the, the thing that would be tangible on Easter Sunday would be the presence of God and a manifestation of your joy. Lord, that's so much better than candy. Yeah, amen to that. Love you guys. Thanks for listening today.